following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. Thank you. I'm happy to be home. I miss you all, especially those I haven't met yet. Uh, uh, a couple of things that I want to share with you before we get started, or at least one. Um, next Sunday, uh, we're going to have baptism. Uh, and I know of at least one, maybe more. Yes. Okay, so three um, folks are going to get baptized, including Cassandra and Shane and Eva. Um, so we're all going to be baptized next Sunday. So very exciting there. Um, we, we all got to go to camp and be there together, and it was a wonderful time, and uh, it was a very compelling message early in the week about uh, how the, uh, in modern church, the, the altar call has replaced baptism as the public profession of faith. Like if you raise your hand or you go forward or whatever to accept Christ, that's your public profession of faith, where the if we're concerned with what the Bible actually says, which is the whole point of what we're doing here today, um, baptism is that step of proclaiming my long, my life belongs to Jesus. Um, and so if anybody else here has not been baptized and wants to participate in that and following the Lord in this way, uh, just give me a shout and um, um, we'll put you at the end of the line. Maybe the water will be warmer by the time it's your turn. <laughs> it's not going to be. Um, so that's next Sunday. Um, so I want to turn our attention to our catechism questions, uh, cause this really kind of launches, uh, the sermon for this morning, cause this is kind of atypical for me and uh, I'm already feeling very anxious about it. So let's go to the catechism questions and, and, um, was I supposed to do something else before that? I don't remember. Here we go. Okay, so for those of you who are new or visiting, um, we have been using the New City Catechism, uh, which is a book that you can buy or a free app that you can download. And we've been working through these catechism questions, pretending to memorize them um, and uh, reciting them together uh, every week. Um, And so the kids have an answer and then the adults have the answer. So I'm going to ask the questions and the kids can answer first and then the adults. Uh, And then we're going to focus on the last question um, Today, So question 21, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Excellent. And adults, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Question 22, why must the redeemer be truly human? Excellent. And adults, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. In question 23, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And we got there. Good. 
and adults, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. And question 24, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Amen. And question 24, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. And question 25, does Christ's death mean that all our sins can be forgiven? Okay. <laughs> and adults, does Christ's death mean that all our sins can be forgiven? Yes. yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. 26. What else does Christ's death redeem? Amen. And adults, what else does Christ's death redeem? Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. And question 27, are all people just as though they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? Amen. My hearing's not great. So, okay. Um, and adults, are all people just as though they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who are not elect by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being. And question 28, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Okay. And adults, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly punished forever. Forever. Amen. Um, 
So this is our topic of conversation today. Um, for the last 10 years or so, we've been working book by book, verse by verse um, through the New Testament, which has been a, a great blessing, I think, to all of us. And I don't typically stray from that formula uh, to get into topical studies. But today, um, because of our catechism question, I felt that it was very important to address this issue, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith. It's very important to have an accurate understanding about what the Bible actually says about the answer to this question, and not one that is based on tradition or outside sources such as Looney Tunes, where Sylvester the cat gets sent to hell to be tormented by the devil played by a big red bulldog. That was my picture of hell as a kid. Unfortunately, images like this have informed much of Christian tradition rather than what the Bible actually has to say about the destiny of those who die apart from faith in Christ. So my goal here this morning is twofold. Uh, One, that we will get a clearer understanding of what the Bible actually says and why that's important. And two, to magnify the grace of God based on our understanding of the reality of hell. And we are definitely going to need the Father's help if we're going to accomplish that today. So let's pray. Father, you know my heart here this morning. I pray that your spirit would speak regardless of what I say. That you would fix the words between my mouth and your people's ears. That you would speak to us through your word for your glory and our good. Help us, Lord, to understand what your word actually says. And we ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm curious, as we get started, what do you think of when you hear the word hell? Is your picture like mine with Sylvester riding the the escalator down in, in that famous sketch, Satan's Waiting? No, is this unfamiliar to you? I'm the only one. It's Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, right? Sylvester. I think Far Side. Far, you think of the Far Side? Yeah, lots of um, yep, accordion players and things like that. And <laughs> yeah. So fire and brimstone, is that is that a common thought here? I mean, I don't. I'm not going to belabor the point here, um, but we think of a fiery place of torment, right? When you think of hell, I mean, I'm going to assume yes, because you're not saying anything else. Um, we think of um, a lot of the church, the opinion has been informed by Dante Alighieri, who was an, who was an Italian author. He wrote Inferno, Dante's Inferno and Paradiso and Purgatorio, right? And it's a, it's a story of his journey down through the layers, the levels of hell, and he finally gets down to the last level where he's, he's past all these horrible people being tormented all the way down, and he gets down all the way to the bottom where it's the devil chewing on Judas for eternity. Like that's, that was his picture of, of hell. Gross. It's horrible. It's, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible idea. It's also totally wrong. That's not what the Bible describes at all. And so 
My hope is, again, to gain an understanding of what the Bible actually says. And if we leave here, if you leave here today with no better idea of what hell is than what you came, if you just leave with the idea that it matters what the Bible actually says about things, then I'll, I'll be satisfied. So one of the things that complicates the ideas of hell is that the translators, bless them, Lord, use the word hell in place of at least three different words um, in the New Testament, and they all mean very different things. This is not helpful. So let's start at the beginning with the question, what was the Old Testament understanding of what happens after death to the wicked? You won't find the word hell in the Old Testament at all. Um, The Old Testament uses the word Sheol, and it appears 65 times in the Old Testament. The word hell appears zero times in the Old Testament. Sheol is uh, in the ESV, the English Standard Version that we use, or that that I read out of here for you, um, it doesn't translate the word Sheol. It uses the word Sheol. Um, And it is described as deep and dark with bars the slain go down to it. And the root word in Hebrew means to ask or demand. Um, Proverbs 30, verse 15 says that Sheol is never satisfied. Um, and Easton's Bible Dictionary defines it as the place of disembodied spirits. The inhabitants of Sheol are the congregation of the dead and that it is the abode of the wicked dead. So that's the Old Testament um, understanding of what happens to the wicked when they die. Um, you can read the words of David. Well, he, he will say in the Psalms he's going to rest with his fathers, right, which is a, a prettier picture than uh, Sheol. And the New Testament, turning to the New Testament, um, the, the writers of the New Testament used a Greek word that I'm sure you've all heard before for this very same concept of Sheol. And again, the English Standard Version um, leaves it untranslated, and the word is Hades. And I think that in some of the modern translations, and even not that modern translations, um, they don't use the word Hades, they use the word hell, because they don't want to confuse anyone with any Greek mythology about places of the dead. Um, would it surprise you to think that the Greek mythology is informed by the Bible? Because the Old Testament came first. Sheol existed before. Any, any um, explanations of Greek gods and goddesses and demigods and all of that nonsense. So the concept of Hades existed before the concept of Zeus and the, the person, um, false god Hades. In Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, Jesus gave us this famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes, from, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, just from a plain reading of that text, if you think about that for a second, it's clear that Jesus did not intend this parable to be a definitive teaching on the nature of Hades and of paradise, though we find those concepts there. The point of that parable is to show the presence of the gospel in the Old Testament, that there is enough information in the law and the prophets um, for people to come to faith and be saved. However, Jesus used the word Hades, not hell, to describe the place where the wicked rich man was in anguish. Hades, not hell. The word hell, to add to our further confusion, is neither a Greek nor a Hebrew word. It's not even Aramaic. According to Eastman's Bible Dictionary, again, this is a book that you can read for free on the Internet, just so you know. It comes, this word, hell, comes from a Saxon word. You've heard of the Anglo-Saxons, the Gauls and the Saxons, right? It comes from the word helen, H-E-L-A-N, which means to cover, hence the covered or invisible place. But our translators use the word hell 14 times in the New Testament. The English Standard Version, again, that we read out of every Sunday, uses the word Hades when that's when what the original language says. But there are still two other words translated into the word hell that we need to look at. One appears only one time. Are you, are you with me? I, I'm boring myself. I just, okay, good. All right. The good news is it's short. Um, there is a single occurrence of one of these words, and that is the word Tartarus. Just say it with confidence. Nobody's going to know the difference. Tartarus. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, which is translated into the word hell, when Peter is talking about the angels who rebelled with Satan and were imprisoned with chains in gloomy darkness until judgment. And from my study, my reading on this use of the word hell, um, the prevailing opinion is that the translators used the word hell instead of Tartarus to avoid any more confusion 
by adding the single occurrence of this angelic prison idea uh, to an already confusing sermon. That was funny when I wrote it, and I appreciate the courtesy laugh over here. (laughs) There are 13 other times the word hell is used for the Greek word, for a different Greek word in the New Testament, and that is the word Gehenna. Um, And most of its uses designate the place of the lost. What's interesting about the word Gehenna, at least interesting to me, is that this is not just a far-off metaphysical place. Now, I don't, I don't mean to surprise anyone here, but you all, we together, are not the first ones to receive the word of Scripture, to, to hear the word of God. I, I, I know, it's surprising, shocking. We're not the first ones. When we read the words of Jesus... We have to remember that he was in a very real place talking to real people. And those people had certain understandings of some of the things that Jesus pointed out and used as object lessons. When when he talks about separating wheat and chaff, there's a good chance there's a wheat field nearby. Or there may be somebody throwing the wheat up in the air and watching the chaff blow away. It's not just conjuring ideas out of nowhere. Jesus used powerful pictures of reality that people could see and understand. So the word Gehenna means the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And it is a real, actual place. Did you know that? Hell is real and there is such thing as hell on earth. It's on the south side of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom is a deep, narrow ravine that runs, uh, that separates Mount Zion from the so-called Hill of Evil Council. Uh, it took its name from some ancient hero, the son of Hinnom, and it's first mentioned in Joshua chapter 15, verse 8. It had been the place where idolatrous Jews had burned their children as sacrifices to Moloch, and to Baal before the Babylonian exile. And a particular part of the valley was called Tophet, or the the fire stove, and that's where the children were burned. And after the Babylonian exile, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, in order to show uh, their disgust and abhorrence of of, of these events in the past, the Jews made this valley the garbage dump. Um, And uh, it was, it's the place where trash goes and they would burn it. Um, For the destruction of fire was, uh, as supposed, was constantly burning. There was always a fire burning in the valley of Hinnom because trash is constantly being thrown there. I have walked through this valley It is a very real place, and it's gross. I walked through there in 1997, all right, almost 2,000 years after these words were written, and it's still a gross place to be, not just because I remember what it was for, but there's still rotting donkey carcasses scattered around on the ground in that valley. It's just not a pleasant place to be. 
It's nasty. So the Jews associated with this valley two different ideas. One, that the sufferings of the victims um, that had been sacrificed, uh, they, they remembered those victims. And two, that the filth and corruption uh, of that place, it became um, to the popular mind a, simple, a symbol of the abode of the wicked, right? The, the eternal destiny of the wicked in the hereafter. It came to signify hell as a place of the wicked. It might be shown by infinite examples that the Jews expressed hell or the place of the damned by this word, Gehenna. The word Gehenna, which is the Greek contraction of the Valley of Hinnom, was never used in the time of Christ in any other sense than to denote the place of future punishment. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that the Valley of Hinnom was a real place where real garbage was really being burned all the time? Think about this for a minute. I don't know what scale Jerusalem is in your imagination. It is not a big place. Like the nation of Israel is smaller than New Jersey. It is not big. So when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. uh, And if you've never seen a picture of the view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, on your way out, go into my office. There There is a picture on the wall of Jerusalem from this viewpoint. What's interesting about that picture is you, you're, you can see the holy city of Jerusalem and you can also see the valley of Hinnom from the Mount of Olives. So what does that mean? When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, sitting on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, everybody there who is hearing that sermon can see the valley of Hinnom from that spot. It's not even a quarter of a mile away. It's even possible that they could see and maybe even smell the smoke. Does that add a little bit more visceral nature to this picture to you? I don't think I I often don't read the Bible that way. My eyes float over the words and I don't think about what did things smell like. But it's very possible if the breeze is blowing in the right direction, that they could smell the smoke from the burning trash in the valley of Hinnom. So when Jesus says in Matthew 29 and uh, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you, you that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into Gehenna, to hell. When Jesus says these words, he could have very well, and this is, again, just my imagination, but he could very well have been pointing to Gehenna. I don't mean to point at you, sorry. (laughs) We'll point towards Conway. He could have been pointing to that never-ending column of smoke from burning garbage. Either way, it's very clear what was in store for the wicked. Destruction. So we have Sheol, we have Hades, we have Gehenna and Tartarus, and the final picture, the lake of fire. This is another word. 
It doesn't get translated as hell, but this is where our picture of all the burning comes from. The lake of fire is also confused with hell, um, just, just as hell is often confused as Satan's headquarters. Right? Is, is hell Satan's clubhouse where he and his demons hang out? No, it's not. It's not a place where he wants to go either. Here is what Revelation 20 has to say about the lake of fire and its purpose. Revelation 20, starting at verse 10. Forgive me a start in the middle of a sentence. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'd already been thrown in there. And, there will, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Okay? That's part one. Part two. In verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky flew away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final destination for Satan, for the beast, and for the false prophet. It's not their headquarters. It's not their clubhouse. They don't want to go there. It's also the final destination for Sheol and for Hades, for the grave. Death and the grave get burned up and are gone. It's also the final destination for all those who die and are not united by faith to Christ. This is the second death. Now, there's lots of arguments over whether or not this is a place of eternal conscious torment or a place of absolute destruction. The Bible is very clear that Satan and the beast and the false prophet will be tormented there forever. However, that same phrase is not used of the people who die apart from Christ that are thrown into the lake of fire. It says that it's the second death. So again, that is, um, in, my, in my view, that is a place of destruction for people who, whose names are not written in the book of life, that they are thrown in there and destroyed. And that it's, in itself is an act of grace of God. The idea of eternal conscious torment and flame, I think, is missing from Scripture. So here we are at the point of the sermon, if you're still with me, where we ask the question, so what? Are we just talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Does this matter at all? And I'm still wondering myself. We have to go back to our two goals for the day. One is that we will get a clearer understanding of what the Bible actually says and why it's important. And two 
to magnify the grace of God based on our understanding of the final destination of those who are not united to Christ by faith. So again, if you've heard nothing I've said all morning, hear this. What the Bible actually says is important. Now, I I don't want you to hear me say what the Bible says is important, although that's a true statement. But what the Bible actually says is importanter. Because we, we get caught up in, in, our, in our pictures that we make in our mind of the things that we prefer. We take the parts of Scripture that we like and leave the parts out that we don't like. We don't like to talk about hell. Who likes to talk about that? Not me. I had to sit down and write this sermon. This is not what I wanted to talk about today. However, it's important because this is what the Bible actually says. And there is a lot of meat left on this bone. Believe me. I, this is... This is Summary statements, not exhaustive. So uh, if I've said something that's off, I've said something that you disagree with, and you have scripture that, that I did not uh, see, I would hap- happily talk with you about that. And I, would, I, I may not be happy, but I will take correction if necessary. I'll do it with a smile on my face. I'll try. When we allow our thinking about biblical principles to be informed only by tradition, only by TV and movies or books and articles that are outside of Scripture, instead of what the Bible actually says, we are in danger of misunderstanding the word and misapplying its truth or not applying its truth at all and settling for somebody else's idea. God's word, the Bible, is God's words, right? And we should measure all that we think and know by it not some outside source. So if your faith is completely based on what I say, you are in trouble. But if your faith is based on what Jesus says, what the Holy Spirit has said in the Bible, you're in a lot better spot. Nothing I've said this morning is secret or hidden wisdom. You can read all these commentaries. If you want to spend a couple of bucks, you can read all the same books that I read. You can find most of this information with a Google search, although I wouldn't trust Wikipedia to really inform your biblical studies, but we just can't settle for the things that we've been told. We have to search God's word and see for ourselves. Secondly, if you remember Will's sermon from last week on the Roman road, you'll remember that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God shows his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Sheol, saved from Hades, saved from Gehenna, saved from the lake of fire, all of which we deserve because of our sin. We are, cert- we are not only saved from the second death, but we are saved to a wonderful and growing eternal relationship with God, our Heavenly Father 
who saves us from all that by his grace through faith in Jesus for his glory alone. This is the good news, right? This is why this concept magnifies the grace of God, because all of these horrible things we've been talking about this morning is exactly what we deserve for our sin. That was the penalty that Jesus took upon himself so that we don't have to experience any of that. Ephesians 2 says, and I'm going to close with this. I didn't hear any amens, but I I know that they were in your heart. And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, great are you, Lord, that you can take these frail words of mine and translate them into powerful words from you. Lord, I pray that we would have a better understanding of the greatness of your grace this morning. When we recognize what it is that our sin deserves, what we deserve because of our sin, and what you took upon yourself when you died on the cross. Lord, we are grateful for your word, that you've preserved it for us, that we can read it ourselves and, and try to understand the message that you have for us. Lord, we recognize we can't do that without the Holy Spirit's help. Many have tried and failed. So, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, first of all, spurn us to read your word. And secondly, to help us understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.